Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. Exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. Early November brought the news that the FDA had given emergency use authorization to Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine for children ages 5 to 11. This authorization is another tool in our fight against COVID-19 and will help safeguard our children and community. However, with this authorization comes questions from parents on the safety of the vaccine for their children. In today's episode, our guest host, Dr. Melissa Hogan, Dean of the College of Science, Health, and Pharmacy, speaks with Dr. Bedrijo Nikosovic and Dr. Kathy DiVincenzo. The three offer their perspective on the vaccine and COVID in kids. This episode is part six in our COVID vaccine series and will hopefully answer your questions and help alleviate any hesitancy. Please enjoy their conversation. Welcome to our discussion on the COVID-19 vaccine in children. My name is Melissa Hogan, and I'm the Dean of the College of Science, Health, and Pharmacy here at Roosevelt University. This session is part of a series of discussions on the COVID-19 vaccine and can be found on the Roosevelt University and Justice for All podcast, available on the RU website and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's discussion will focus on the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine, which received emergency use authorization from the FDA for children aged 5 to 11 earlier this month. This decision follows approval earlier this year for children aged 12 and up and represents an opportunity to further reduce the spread of COVID-19 in our schools and communities. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Bedria Nikoshevich and Dr. Kathy DiVincenzo. Together, they will share their perspectives on the vaccine and COVID-19 in kids. Dr. DiVincenzo is a pediatrician with a very successful private practice, Kids First Pediatric Partners, which she opened in 2004 and includes a team of seven physicians, four nurse practitioners, and two psychologists. Dr. DiVincenzo graduated from Rush University and completed a pediatrics residency at Loyola. She serves on Advocate Children's Hospital Physician Advisory Council. Dr. Bedria Nikoshevich serves as an assistant professor of clinical sciences at Roosevelt. Her teaching is focused on pharmacy law and the practical knowledge and skills needed to be an effective pharmacist. She also serves as an ambulatory care clinical pharmacist at the Diabetes and Endocrinology Center for Excellence at Holy Cross Hospital on Chicago's South Side. Dr. Nikoshevich earned her Doctor of Pharmacy degree at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and she serves as a chair of Roosevelt University's Faculty Issues Committee, board president of the Bosnian-Herzegovinian American Community Center, and chair of the Illinois Pharmacists Association Professional Affairs Committee. She was also appointed to serve on the Illinois Healthcare and Family Services Drug Utilization Board. Dr. Zivincenzo Nikoshevich, thank you both for joining us today. I know that people are anxious to understand more about the COVID-19 vaccine and its safety in children, 
and that you both have a lot of information to share with us. So let's get started. Dr. DiVincenzo, what does it mean to you as a pediatrician to have this vaccine available for your young patients? Um, I have to say when the vaccine became available for children and we started vaccinating children in my practice, it was honestly the happiest day in my 21-year medical career. I have never felt such excitement that we were going to be able to protect not only children, but protect their families as well, and start to get back to some normalcy in the lives of these kids. So many of their lives have been very, very disrupted by the pandemic, whether it be their own illness, illness of a parent or grandparent, isolation from friends, the social and emotional disconnect that they've experienced. Um, so I, I think this was a watershed moment uh, in, in pediatric medicine. Absolutely. Dr. Nikoshevich, you have two young children who are now eligible to receive the vaccine. So have you gotten them vaccinated? They are actually going to be receiving their vaccines tomorrow. We have their appointments scheduled for tomorrow afternoon. And they're actually looking forward to it, which is unusual for my children to be looking forward to vaccines. That's wonderful. And how did you come to the decision to get them vaccinated? For us as a family, the decision was, of course, one that is always a little bit more difficult than it is for when you're deciding about yourself as a parent. So we looked at several different things. Obviously, I looked at all the studies that came out regarding the vaccine for both adults and children. I looked at the side effects. I looked at the efficacy. I looked at the other side of it. What happens if they don't get the vaccine? So far, we know that about 700 children have died um, due to COVID. And while 700 may not seem like a large number when you compare it to the number of children out there, if it were your child, it certainly would seem like the biggest number in the world, at least to me. So that certainly played a role in making that decision. And I think the last part of it was really my daughter coming home from school the day the vaccine was approved and asking when their vaccines are scheduled. And I was like, uh, mommy's a little behind on that one. So let's get that scheduled right away. That's awesome. So I bet they're excited about getting their shots. They actually are, which again, not something they're usually excited about. They'll put up with shots. They'll get their flu shot every year, but typically they're not excited. This one, they're actually, I think, looking forward to going back to normalcy. And I think they're ready to stop hearing me say, well, we can't go to altitude today because of COVID. Uh, we can't go to a restaurant today because it's a Saturday and it's going to be jam-packed and you all are not vaccinated yet. So it certainly is something that will hopefully help us get one step closer to normal. So I think for most parents, the biggest question that they have is the safety of the vaccine. So what can you tell us about what is known about the safety of the Pfizer shot, Dr. Nikoshevich? It certainly was for me, as I mentioned earlier, one of the biggest things that we considered was what happens if they do take the vaccine? And having looked over the study that was recently released uh, regarding the Pfizer vaccine and patients 5 to 11 years of age, what they saw most of the time is what we would typically see with other vaccines, such as a flu shot or a tetanus vaccine. So pain, swelling, redness at the injection site. And of course, that will happen because you're 
going into a body with a needle. So of course there will be some of that. For the most part, the other adverse effects were actually very rare occurring in only about 0.1 to 0.9% of patients. And they included a little bit of tiredness, a little bit of headache, some chills, muscle pain. Typically these side effects seem to have occurred um, in patients for a period of one to two days and resolved soon thereafter. In some cases, the patients maybe needed to take a little bit of Tylenol or a little bit of ibuprofen in order to help the child be more comfortable during the time that the side effect was going on. But for the most part, it's a side effect that is there shortly, um, certainly something that's maybe bothersome a little bit, but nothing severe. So the one serious side effect or consequence of the vaccine that I've read about is myocarditis. Dr. DiVincenzo, what is myocarditis and how significant is the risk for children who get the vaccine? So myocarditis is an inflammation of the heart muscle. And typically it is diagnosed, the most common symptoms would be either an abnormal heart rhythm, which you might experience as palpitations. Chest pain is probably the most common symptom that we would see. And myocarditis has been shown to be a very rare event with kids who receive the COVID vaccine, but the risk is there. It's very, very small. What I like to tell families is that the risk of myocarditis or heart inflammation, if their children were to get COVID, is substantially higher from the illness than it is from the vaccine. So long-term, some of the long-term side effects of COVID illness in children include heart muscle damage. So as I'm having this conversation, I reassure them that this is something that we know about. This is something that we look out for. In the children that have been identified, diagnosed with myocarditis following COVID vaccine, none of those children have died. All of those children have recovered. There have been some hospitalizations for monitoring but it seems to be a, a serious but self-resolving side effect. And once again, it's very, very rare. We're not so sure about children who get natural COVID illness and may have some lingering cardiac complications from that. So in terms of, in terms of the safety, uh, I absolutely recommend the vaccine. I can see why parents would be scared, right? Myocarditis sounds really serious. Is there a way to identify which children are more likely to have this response to the vaccine? You know, in, in what we have seen thus far in the approximately 1,200 cases or so that have been identified in, in kids, it is it has been primarily an adolescent boy phenomenon, more common after the second dose of the vaccine. And typically, symptoms of chest pain appear within four days or so of receiving the vaccine. So while it is it is something to be on the lookout for, and it is something that we counsel about when we're when we're talking to families about the vaccine, you know, once again, the number of cases compared to the number of doses given is tiny. It's not tiny if it's your child. I, I understand that. 
And, and believe me, as a physician, you know, our goal, our, our mantra is first do no harm. So, um, so I think it's very important to look at this data carefully um, and make sure that by recommending the vaccine, um, we are not putting children at risk. As I said, it turns out myocarditis from COVID infection itself is much, much, much more common than it is in the vaccinated kids who receive the COVID vaccine. And do we see a trend with one of the three vaccines that are approved in the U.S. that one is better or worse than the other, or are they about the same? So I have to say, you know, from my from my position as a pediatrician, I have really just been focused on Pfizer because that is the only vaccine that is available for use in children. When I got my first vaccine back in December, December of 2020, once again, one of the happiest days of my life, and I was offered Pfizer. Of course, now it looks, when you look at some of the data, it looks like the Moderna vaccine might offer longer lasting or perhaps a bit higher protection. But I think the important thing to remember is both of these vaccines are extraordinarily extraordinarily effective. So for families who are thinking, well, gosh, I I heard Moderna is better. Should I wait until Moderna comes out to give that to my child? My answer would be absolutely not. I think having your child vaccinated now is so important. And we really, we just don't know when Moderna will come out. The Pfizer is just a very safe and effective vaccine. So if parents still have concerns about their child, whether they have other illnesses or just, you know, have have worries about the vaccine, what should they do? You know what? There is currently a great commercial on TV that every time I see it, it makes my heart really happy. And it is a number of physicians in the Chicago area and they're talking about the vaccine, and, and their, their tagline is, trust your doctor. And I think it is so important for families to have a trusted relationship with their pediatrician. And we should be available. We should be able to answer their questions, be able to respond in a very non-judgmental way to, to their concerns, But I love the trust your doctor because families do trust us, right? They have taken our advice on every other issue that has arisen with their child. And I think this is just a perfect example of how a trusting relationship with a healthcare provider can result in a good outcome for the family. That makes sense because you're the ones taking care of their children for everything else. You'll, You'll know what they need and what's best for them. What I also tell families when they will, you know, tell me that they read something on Google or they they heard something, I remind them that Google and Facebook are not trusted medical sources and that their physician is getting their information from a source, for example, like the American Academy of Pediatrics or the CDC. And my career has been, you know, spent looking at data 
and identifying sources that are trustworthy, that I depend on to give my family's advice, and that we should not be treating the COVID vaccine differently than any of these other issues that we have been talking about over the years. That makes a lot of sense. Dr. Nikoshevich, one concern that I've heard, especially when the vaccines first came out for adults, was that they were rushed to market and it's just too early to get a shot because we haven't studied them enough. And, you know, looking at the COVID vaccine compared to other treatments and vaccines, it did go a lot faster than usual. But now we've had we've had the vaccines on the market for a while. We've had lots and lots of people get vaccinated My question is really about this vaccine for children, though. Has the Pfizer vaccine for children been studied in enough children? Do we have enough data to back up all of Dr. DiVincenzo's claims that it is safe? Do do we know that for sure? The most current study in children 5 to 11 actually enrolled about 2,300 patients. And while that may not seem like a large number for a study, Studies in children typically enroll much lower numbers than do studies for adults. Um, Because think about it, as a parent yourself, would you want to enroll your child in a clinical study, right? I recently read an article that was actually focused on parents and their perceptions of enrolling a child in a clinical study. And there were a lot of very valid concerns brought out by the parents, right? Can you guarantee that my child's safety will come first? Can you guarantee that regardless of what happens, you will put my child before your clinical outcomes, right, to ensure that everything is going according to plan. So certainly the numbers are going to be lower in childhood studies. At the same time, I do feel like the amount of children that it was studied in is significant. I do also feel like over the past few weeks, even that the vaccine has been available, it's been administered to thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of children in the United States already. And if there were serious issues that were going to arise, they were going to be identified by now with regards to this vaccine. So personally, again, my children are nine and a half and and 10 and a half. I do believe in in trusting in the science. I do trust my pediatrician um, to know what's best for them. But then I also have been looking at studies and, and keeping track of clinical data for a very long period of time. And I I feel like if I'm comfortable with it, I'm comfortable recommending it to others as well, right? So one of my friends actually called last week asking the same question, right? Is the vaccine safe? Should I give it to my child? They're coming to school to administer vaccines. And my response was, my children are scheduled to receive it next Wednesday. You should definitely take your child in to get it. So Dr. DiVincenzo, I think you pointed out that, you know, the myocarditis, if someone's going to get it. If they get COVID, it's going to be worse than with the vaccine. Dr. Nikoshevich mentioned that, you know, some children have died of COVID. But in general, we've seen that, you know, elderly and people with concomitant conditions are the ones who are suffering from COVID-19. And in general, our children aren't getting a lot of symptoms from it. If they do, it's like a cold. So, what is the reason that a parent would decide to get their child vaccinated? We we don't worry about vaccinating for colds. Why, why, what's the incentive for a parent to vaccinate for COVID-19? Sure. We know what kids don't die from colds, right? Even though um, it is a small number of children who have died from COVID-19 or complications from COVID-19, 
I think any child who dies from a vaccine-preventable illness is one child too many. We have, we have the science, we have the technology to protect all of our children. So I think first and foremost, for me as a pediatrician, that is why I so strongly recommend it. In addition, you know, the numbers of children, thank goodness, the numbers of mortality in, uh, in children who have had COVID is very small but I think significant. And then we also have to look at hospitalizations. You know, there have been, especially with the rise of the Delta variant, um, the uptick in pediatric hospitalizations with COVID-19 is very significant. And one thing that we are still learning about and is going to be a story, I think, for a long time, just like in the adult population, the number of children with so-called long COVID. And we've seen a number of kids in our practice. Symptoms range from extreme fatigue to persistent cough to, you know, brain fog. And while their child may have initially had a not-so-severe illness, these complications can be long-lasting and still poorly understood. So, Dr. Nikoshevich, for parents who are deciding to get the vaccine for their child, I think one concern may be just those reactions, right? You talked a little bit about maybe needing some Tylenol or Motrin, but I know a lot of folks who, you know, really felt bad after getting the shot. They had flu-like symptoms like body aches and fevers for a day. What would you say to parents who are worried about that kind of reaction in their kids? I think anytime we look at any treatment, we're looking at that risk versus benefit, right? And in this case, the risk of getting COVID versus the benefit of being vaccinated is what we're really trying to weigh here. So you may end up with one or two days of feeling miserable. It might be severe fatigue. It might be a high fever. But those are all things that will go away within one or two days. We just heard from Dr. DiVincenzo about even children who suffer from long COVID, which can lead to a lifetime or long-term issues. I'm not going to say a lifetime because we don't have evidence to show that just yet, but to long-term issues that could continue to progress even past a year mark, past the two-year mark for these children. So if it's a matter of not feeling well for a day or two versus a matter of not feeling well for months or possibly years because you're suffering from long COVID, I believe the benefit definitely outweighs the risk. The other thing that I would like to point out is oftentimes parents ask about using Tylenol or Motrin before receiving the vaccine to help preempt some of these adverse effects that might occur with the vaccine. And that's not something that's typically recommended within the medical community. What we usually say is don't take the medications before you receive the vaccine. If you do develop these side effects after you have had the vaccine, then it is okay to take Tylenol or ibuprofen um, to help treat them. So Dr. DiVincenzo, one other concern that was in the news a lot after the Pfizer vaccine first came out was the issue of allergies. And there were some pretty dramatic stories of folks getting vaccinated and having a severe allergic reaction, possibly related to polyethylene glycol allergy. Is this something we need to be worried about with our kids? Who should or should not get the vaccine based on allergy concerns? You know, we are certainly screening our patients 
before they get the vaccine for any allergies such as polyethylene glycol. You know, I think there was a, a recent study published on the safety of the vaccines in terms of allergy and really how the incidence of these serious allergies, first of all, serious allergies to polyethylene glycol are, are, are quite unusual. And so I think the best that we do is we screen our, our patients, we observe them like recommended for 15 to 30 minutes. And I feel comfortable, once again, risk-benefit ratio, that the risk of a serious allergic reaction is minuscule compared to the risk of getting COVID. If I may add, Dr. Hogan, we also typically see these most serious adverse reactions immediately after the vaccine. So within that 15 to 30 minute window where we're actually observing the patient, So even if you are not receiving your vaccine at a physician's office where they have all of the medications available, every single clinic that administers vaccines is required to have specific medications available to administer in case of a severe allergic reaction. So whether you receive your vaccine at a local pharmacy or you receive it at a clinic um, that's being held by a local public health department or at a physician's office or in a hospital, you will have the same care provided to you in case of an allergic reaction, and there will be someone there to assist you. Every person that is trained to administer vaccines is also trained to treat an adverse reaction, a a serious allergic reaction at the same time. That's comforting. So Dr. Nikoshevich, several months ago, you and I talked about myths and misconceptions about the COVID vaccine, and you went through a very long list of false beliefs about the vaccine Have you seen any new misconceptions that came out since the pediatric version came out? I have not seen any new ones. I do feel like the most common ones that people are focusing in on when it comes to children is the risk of infertility, which if you'll recall, uh, when we had discussed that while back, that was coming out of that similarity between a placental adhesion protein that is necessary for the placenta to actually implant to the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein that we are using as the basis for the vaccine. And if you remember at that time, I explained it as living in Chicago and having a digit seven in your telephone number. People could dial all of the phone numbers with number seven before they would ever guess yours. So really there isn't much of a similarity there or much of a concern to be had there. And of course, you know, the tracking is always a concern And we had talked about the basis for that theory as well being that one failed project that had been started to see if there's any utility for tracking, uh, for having some sort of a tracking device within the vaccine that failed in phase one trials. So there is no such device available on the market. We do have tags on the outside of the vaccine. So there's labels on the outside of the vaccines that are barcodes that are essentially used to track the vaccine from the manufacturer to the distributor and then to the end user, um, being the physician or the pharmacy. And that's just to ensure patient safety, really, to make sure that the vaccines that are being distributed to our patients are coming from sources that we can trust. So no new theories, um, but some of the old ones have certainly recirculated when it comes to children. 
One thing, too, that I'd like to add is that a recent thing that has come up with these younger children, I've had families ask me if it will interfere with them going into puberty. Is there any risk of, of puberty suppression? And there is absolutely no data to su- suggest that that is true. I think this is a Facebook urban legend myth that is starting to come out there. So as I said, there's just absolutely no data that it will suppress puberty and, and there's really no data that it affects fertility. So I guess I'll, I'll push you a little bit on that. In addition to there not being data, because I feel like sometimes it feels to people, lay people, that you saying there's no data just means we haven't studied it yet or maybe we'll find out later. But is there a, a plausible mechanism for the vaccine to affect puberty? There is not. Um, similar to all of the other routine vaccines that we currently immunize our children against, there is no scientific mechanism that would explain that. Okay. So probably just, again, one of those Facebook myths. Yeah. And, and remember, I think one of, one of the things that gets people very concerned about these vaccines is the fact that we're using a new platform, right? So we're using this mRNA platform, and a lot of these theories stem from the fact that we are injecting mRNA into our body. And again, I'll reference our previous podcast where we had talked about the mRNA and what it does and what its purpose is, but ultimately, a couple of things. Once the mRNA comes into the body, it doesn't have a way to incorporate itself into our DNA or change our DNA in any way, shape, or form. And it also has a very short half-life. So remember, we we talked about last time the fact that all of these mRNA vaccines are essentially wrapped in a lipid layer in order to even get them into our body because they cannot survive in our bodily fluids for very long. So once they are out of that fatty layer, um, they exert their action and they're gone from our body very quickly. So there is truly no opportunity for them to cause any of these significant issues when it comes to adverse effects. You're listening to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. So that was a lot of information, Dr. Nikosevich. I'm going to ask for a couple definitions. So what is half-life? So half-life is the amount of time that it takes for half of something to be excreted out of your body. In this case, half of the mRNA to disappear from your body but don't we want it all to disappear? We do. So it will eventually all disappear. So half-life is the term that we use to identify that 50% point in pharmacy, but eventually all of it will disappear and it'll actually be very quick disappearance. And you talked about a lipid layer. Is that important for patients to understand? What is a lipid layer? It's almost like having a lollipop with a piece of gum in it, right? So the lipid layer would be the lollipop around that piece of gum that's protecting the gum from being chewed up before you get to it. But as soon as that lipid layer is gone, or as soon as a, as that piece of candy is gone, you can go at that piece of gum quite easily. So our body has then full ability to digest that mRNA as soon as that little bit of lipid on the outside of it is gone. 
So this vaccine is a little bit different in that it causes your body to make a bunch of those spike proteins. And that's the reason it's so powerful. But the vaccine itself is broken down and out of your body within a very short period of time, right? So this is, it's, it's training for the immune system. That's how all vaccines are, right? Getting it ready so when they see the, the infection, when your body sees the infection, it's ready to go. But this one is just a little bit more powerful because it actually enlists our body in making, making those little bits of, of material that, that we can recognize. Absolutely. Okay, so I wanted to go back to one thing that you said earlier, Dr. DiVincenzo, about that Moderna vaccine being possibly more effective than the Pfizer vaccine and, and whether or not that's an important difference for, for parents making this decision. But can you explain, I remember when the vaccines, when those two vaccines came out, we talked about how they're essentially on the same platform, right? They're that mRNA vaccine. Why did it turn out? Why does it look like Moderna might be a little bit better than Pfizer? You know, um, I'm really not equipped to answer that question because as a pediatrician, all of my all of my interest and all have my and my energy in terms of keeping up have really been in terms of the Pfizer vaccine. You know, I might speculate that perhaps sometimes in a vaccine the manufacturer may use something called an adjuvant to perhaps boost the immune response and you know perhaps there might be a difference in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines but that is just speculation on my part. I believe we're primarily seeing the difference because of, yeah, actually difference in dose between the two vaccines. So we cannot compare them. It's almost like comparing apples to oranges, even though they're both created on the same platform, right? We're using mRNA vaccines in both cases, but with the Moderna vaccine, you're injecting about 100 micrograms, well, not about, 100 micrograms, of mRNA essentially into the body, whereas with Pfizer vaccine for adults, it's going to be 30 micrograms. So using that larger dose, does that necessarily lead to that increased response? Quite possibly it does. One of the other things that we saw as a result, or at least initially, was a little bit more adverse effects with the Moderna COVID vaccine. So there was a term that was used for a little while to describe the rashes that would occur at the site of injection as a part of Moderna vaccine administration, we used to call it Moderna arm, um, where it would just be a much larger rash than what you would typically see with vaccine. Harmless, you know, it just looked bad, but nothing really happened as a result of it. And it usually went away within a couple of days. But I think one of, one of the main reasons for that difference is likely that difference in those between the two. So as long as we're talking about dose, how does the vaccine for kids 5 to 11 differ from what was approved for adults? The dose that was actually studied and approved for children was 10 micrograms. For children 5 to 11 um, is 10 micrograms. For adults, we're using 30 micrograms for each of the doses. For children 12 and older, we are using 30 micrograms, which is the same as the adult dose, because that was the dose that was shown to have the higher efficacy and great safety data as well. So 
with this dose difference, does that create a problem if a child turns 12 after they get their first dose, before they get their second dose? What do you do with that? Uh, all the fun things about COVID-19 vaccines. So the dosing is not weight-based, it is age-based. So if a child was 11 when they received the first dose, they would receive the children 5 to 11 dosing, meaning 10 micrograms. Once they turn 12, their second dose would actually be the 30 micrograms, which would be the higher dose that we would typically use for children 12 and older. And that's just how it works out. So I do have a couple of friends whose children are turning 12 in a month, and they're just going to wait the month to administer both doses at the higher level because it, you know, at, at this point to them, it makes sense. And I can see their points. So. So, Dr. DiVincenzo, what about boosters? So a lot of adults have already gotten boosters and these kids are just getting their first series. Are they going to need a second shot or a third shot? And when would that be? Do you, yeah, know? Um, you know what? So I think if we look at the adult data and we follow what's been going on in adults, I would expect that at some point we will be offering boosters to children. I think you know, the whole COVID story has just been an evolution. And as we gain more knowledge, and of course, we'll gain that initially from the adult population, and then from the adolescent population, and then it will spill down, spill down to children. But almost everything that I've read indicates that we are likely to need a, a booster, and perhaps even it's, it's certainly been speculated, and this makes sense to me, you know, perhaps just as we give an annual flu vaccine, an annual COVID vaccine as well. In my practice, I find it so interesting because I have families who are so anxious to get their children vaccinated, or now that they're vaccinated, you know, some of those, you know, 12 to 17-year-olds, they really, really want a booster, and then I have families who really don't even want me to mention or talk about the vaccine because they are so opposed to it. It's been very, very, very striking. For those families who are asking me about boosters and want a booster, you know, we're following the recommendations as we have been all along from the CDC and the FDA. And we are certainly planning if a booster is recommended, we're planning to offer it to our families. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach families that are not comfortable discussing the vaccine? Do you bring up the topic and how do you approach it with them? Yeah, you know, honestly, this has been one of the most challenging challenging things that I've done as a pediatrician because I have seen firsthand, you know, the increasing levels of anxiety and depression in children during the COVID during the COVID pandemic. And the effect that, you know, being in your house for 18 months for some of these children, you know, the harm it's done to them academically, socially. And so it's been really challenging. I've, I have taken to asking families when they come in with their child, even if the child is too young for the COVID vaccine, I ask the parents because I feel like it is my job as a physician and, and public health advocate to reach out to the parents and see if they have questions. And it's just been challenging. There have been families who respond to my question, have you been vaccinated? Of course I have. And I got vaccinated as soon as I 
could and, and please let me know when we can vaccinate our child. And then I've had families who have cut me off at the knees as soon as I ask them the question and say, and they say, we can't go there. I have had a lot of families, not a lot, because I would say the you know majority of families in our practice believe in the vaccine, but you know, I've had families who have told me I have antibodies, which has become a popular saying to to then absolve yourself of any need for the vaccine, which is absolutely not true. So I do feel in some ways that this has changed my relationship with some of the families that I take care of. It, it was never my intention for that to happen, but when I feel that there is resistance to even discuss a potentially life-saving vaccine for them or their children, it's just been very difficult. And I've had families in the practice who have lost grandparents to COVID. I've, I've had several families who, you know, they've lost, they've lost the dad to COVID. And so when I see families that are, that are suffering like that, it's very difficult and challenging when, uh, when I get very quickly dismissed some of the time when I want to have this conversation. It makes me think about how this situation is just so different from what any of us have experienced before. But I'm wondering if you, if there's been any other medical treatment that has sort of been universally accepted or rejected by your patients, with some not even wanting to discuss it, has anything else been this polarizing in your practice? You know, I think there, um, for a, a sm very small number of families, there has been some vaccine hesitancy. And I really feel like it was much worse even 20 years ago where we would, you know, walk into uh, the family of a, a baby and we would talk about the vaccines that they were due for. And families would say, for example, I don't want to give my child all of those vaccines. Can we split them up? Or can't we start vaccines when they are six months old instead of, of two months old? And so in the past, we used to have many more discussions with families like that about the importance of vaccinating. And then one thing our, our practice actually did, and this is, I believe, maybe even 10 years ago, as a practice, we decided that we would not accept families who did not want to vaccinate their children and follow the schedule that is um, set down by the American Academy of Pediatrics. And I have to say, as a pediatrician, that's one of the best things we ever did. I didn't feel like we were abandoning families because we're in the Chicago area. There are, there are lots of physicians, right? So I felt like vaccines and protecting kids is such a central mission to pediatrics that if a family didn't trust us on that very fundamental issue, that we were not going to be a good fit for each other as other issues came up with their child. I think that brings us to my next question, which is about vaccine mandates. So I'm wondering how each of you feel about that, particularly in light of vaccine mandates for school children. 
should the schools be requiring the COVID vaccine specifically, perhaps starting next fall of all children? I feel very strongly about this one. Um, and my response is going to be yes, I do feel that they should be mandated. I understand parents' hesitancy, but I also was born in a communist country myself. And I remember, you know, as a, as a child myself, I remember being forced to receive a vaccine. Um, and certainly that wasn't something that I appreciated. Uh, but at the same time here, I don't think it's necessarily that you are being forced. I think everyone has actually been told everything that there is to know about this disease state. Like there isn't things that are being hidden from the parents. There aren't things that are being hidden from the students. We are trying to do everything we can to stop the spread of this disease, to hopefully return to some sense of normalcy and to actually be in a position where we can do everything we want to do without having to think about how busy is the restaurant I'm going to go to. Can I actually take my kids to go see that movie that they want to see in a theater this weekend? So for me personally, it's a very strong yes. I do believe it should be mandated for children in schools. We mandate other vaccines. I don't see any difference with this particular vaccine. And I do feel like it is a public health issue um, that every healthcare provider should be focusing on at this point in time. I would absolutely agree. I think, as you said, we mandate many other vaccines for children to be allowed to go to school. We protect against illnesses that are serious, but thank goodness have become very, very rare because of our strong, our strong vaccine policies in this country. And once again, just in terms of, of, as you said, normalcy for the, for the children, right? Being able, hopefully eventually to see each other's faces in the classroom, being able to go on a, go on a play date, being able to safely see grandparents and other, and other family members, because we have so much trust in this vaccine, I feel like there's absolutely no reason why it should not be mandated. And I think a part of it, and Dr. DiVincenzo had touched on this previously, is the mental health of our children, right? I do feel like at least my children at this point, and maybe it's because they hear me talk about vaccines so much, but at this point, I almost feel like my children feel like mommy's protected and I need to make sure that I'm protected from this virus as well. I also remember very clearly all of, you know, 2020 where my son went to school online and cried almost every day because he disliked it so much. It was a struggle for him to pay attention. It was a struggle for him to remain engaged. And now that he's back in school, he comes home and he's telling me about all the great things that he did with his teacher, all the great things that he did with the other students in class. Um, and, and for me, it's such a significant difference just in the level of engagement that I see with my child. And I'm sure every parent sees with their child when they're in person versus remote. And, and I think it, it certainly vaccines are going to help us stay in person for as long as we can. So let's talk a little bit about what we have to look forward to. You know, I think when the vaccine came out, a lot of us just, we were so joyful. We were so relieved that this was our way out. 
now we're a year and a half into this and it's still going with our young children being vaccinated with our vaccination numbers slowly going up are we going to see our way out of this or are we going to just have a new normal what what will that look like you know i feel like we are not going to eradicate covid but we are going to learn to coexist safely with it and and i think by coexisting safely i mean you know, studies have shown so overwhelmingly that if you've been vaccinated, your risk of severe illness and hospitalization is is quite low. You know, knowing that has, I think, been the light at the end of the tunnel for many of us. And we are thinking and going to restaurants and seeing friends and planning travel of course, doing it in a in a safe way and checking statistics before we get on that airplane. But but I do feel like we are starting to get to our way back. One of my colleagues who's an immunologist, when we first started with COVID nineteen, you know, when when the virus first became known, I asked him what he thinks about it, and and the thing he said to me is, there are more viruses in this world than there are people. So at some point, we certainly will learn how to coexist, right, and how to continue to do everything we can safely. I feel exactly the same way as Dr. DiVincenzo. The vaccines make me feel safer going into public spaces. They help me feel safer going to gatherings where, you know, maybe I have an elderly relative who does have cancer and is unable to mount an immune response at this point in time. But if I'm vaccinated, at least I feel like I am protected. And and by being protected myself, I'm protecting them as well. So I do feel like it will be a new normal, but it will be a much more comfortable new normal for most of us because we can feel safe in the knowledge that we're able to to do at least something to protect ourselves. When I think back to a year and a half ago, when COVID first came out, we didn't know how long it lived on surfaces even, forget anything about how to treat it or how to prevent it. So we're certainly in a much better place now than we were then, and hopefully it's just uphill from now. So one final question for each of you. What would you like to share with folks who are trying to decide whether or not to get their children vaccinated? I would like to say that I would hope they would reach out to a trusted medical professional in their life to have a conversation with. And it should be a thoughtful conversation, right? Your physician should be be open to answering your questions and should be respectful of your views. And I think there is so much good science that supports this vaccine, and we've already seen how um, how vaccinating the adults and the adolescents has resulted in like such an improvement in really our quality of life than over the last year. And I would love for your children to have that same improvement in their quality of life as well. I think the one thing that would be most impactful for me at as a parent to hear is, I love my children as much as, as you love yours. And if I've chosen to vaccinate my children, I would certainly highly encourage you to do so as well. And as Dr. DiVincenzo said, please do talk to someone. Hopefully that healthcare provider you speak to will be open-minded, 
but at the same time, please be open-minded when you speak to them. So, you know, I think oftentimes what we see is patients or friends coming into it with a very set mentality of vaccines are terrible, they're horrible. And sometimes we see healthcare providers coming with the complete opposite attitude, right? Vaccines are amazing and great, and we're unable to meet in the middle because everyone is, everyone feels so strongly about their viewpoint. And I think sometimes it's just important to, to be open to the conversation at least. And even in the end, if you don't change your opinion for better or worse, at least you have heard the other person's point of view and you can have something to think about going forward. Thank you. Thank you both for this conversation and for your expertise. I really appreciate your thoughtful responses to my questions. And I think it's very helpful because the parents that I know care deeply about doing the right thing for their children. And it's a very, very confusing time. And I think, you know, now more than ever, it is best to talk to those trusted healthcare providers and share your specific concerns about your own child or about what you've read and get that information from someone who has dedicated their life to translating the science into the care of patients. So thank you. This concludes our fifth installment of our series on the COVID-19 vaccine. You can find this session and every session in our discussion series on the RU podcast and Justice for All. Thank you. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.